Before we dive into God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would make your word loud and clear to us. God, we know we can understand the details of the text apart from the work of your spirit, but we can't receive them. We can't trust them, believe them, act upon them, do anything with them unless you work on us. And so that's what we're asking. We're just completely dependent upon you. Father, as we dive into this text, the thing we need most, it's true for everyone in here, whether they've been a Christian for 51 years, God, whether they have wandered from their faith and they're here this Sunday for the first time in a church in a long time, whether they're here and they're not even sure how they ended up here, whether they're here asking questions, God, wherever we're at, what we need most is to leave this time. And in light of this text, this is oh so true. More sure of what Christ has done, more convinced in all that he's accomplished, more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so we ask that you would send the spirit to lift up Christ you might draw all our hearts after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. R.C. Sproul uh, read this experience he, he had back in the 60s. He was doing some training in his church on something called evangelism explosion. Some of you maybe have been trained through that or you've experienced that training, but basically he trained hundreds and hundreds of people to go door to door and share the gospel, share the good news of Christianity with people has a number of questions and prompts. Maybe if you've ever heard this, the, the question that maybe stands out to you would be this question, if you died tonight. Welcome to Redeemer. It's so fun, the, the whole tone in the room. It's like, did you, do you know something we don't know? If you died tonight and you stand before God and he looks at you and says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? R.C. Sproul says that after doing this with hundreds and hundreds of people, they began to kind of collect and collate the answers. And what they found was 90% of people had some version of the following answer. Why should God let you in? 90% of people respond this way. I tried to live a good life. I went to church on Father's Day. I tithe my income. I did good works. What 90% of the people that they talk to are banking on in order to get into heaven is what is known as works righteousness. That if we do the right things, then God will let us in. If we can accumulate enough spiritual tokens, then our place in eternity future is secured. It's a, it's a version of saying, okay, if I obey enough, then I'll be accepted. Jesus' parable, the parable we're going to look at today, is designed to get any of us who believe like that 90% to believe something completely different. Jesus is going to offer us something that is much better than our performance and so much more certain than our performance. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. This is Jesus speaking here. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Feel free to grab a seat. Verse 9 provides a very clear lens to read this, this parable through. I think I said last week this is one of only two times that Jesus tells you, like, here's the point of the parable before the parable. I think it actually might be one of three. But it's unusual for Jesus to do this. But he tells us in verse 9, here's why I'm about to tell you the story I'm going to tell you. He's telling it because there were some that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We're going to try, Lord willing, to get to both of those phrases, but we'll start with the first one. He said this to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Think again about the question, if you died tonight and God was before you and he said, why should you get in? What would the Pharisees' answer have been? He would have said, well, I tithe on everything I get. I fast twice a week, which actually there's nowhere in the Bible where you're commanded to do that. It's a good biblical practice, but he's like going above and beyond. He's like, look at my discipline. Look at my devotion. I'm not like that one and that one and that person. Definitely not like this tax collector. He would have looked to his own performance, his spiritual performance to be able to, it's verse nine, he trusted in himself. And as you see the outcome of this, it's, it's, it's deadly. Now we gotta understand when we hear Pharisee in our ears, we always hear it as like a curse word, but, but Pharisees were not just inherently hypocritical. There were, there were some for sure, Jesus talked about that, but they were sincerely devoted to the things of God. They, they, were, they were committed, they were diligent, they were dutiful in the things of God, and yet look at their outcome. It says, this, this Pharisee who prayed this way, he did not go down to his house justified, the tax collector did. And then you go to the very end in verse 17, and it says, unless you receive the, the kingdom like a child, you, you cannot get in. That he was trusting in himself, that he was in good standing with God, and yet he was not. Jesus makes really clear that his performance is never going to be enough. He, he has what's, what's called a misplaced confidence. Now, the way this works out in our lives can be a lot of different ways. I, I think this illustration from Jerry Bridges in his book, Disciplines of, of Grace, is one of, the, one of the tests that we can show the degree to which we trust in our own spiritual performance for God's blessing. And he says, consider two radically different days. One day is like a spiritually good day. Alarm goes off, 4.45 a.m. You don't hit snooze one time. 
you'd spring out of bed. You, you, you maybe do the Lord's Prayer before your feet touch the carpet. You wander into the kitchen, you'd already pre-prepped your coffee, so you're not angry, you're not rumbling around for anything, you, your, your coffee is ready to go, you grab your cup, you go to your favorite chair, and your Bible is already laid out, the lamp is already ready to go, there's a little pillow sitting next to you, a little spot to journal, and you start at 445 because you're going to take a couple of hours, and you're going to do Bible time and prayer time, you're not going to forget anyone off of your prayer list. <laughs> We'll cover that one next. (laughs) Then your kids wake up, and you have this wonderful family worship together. It's all full of joy. (laughs) Amen, right? Believable? (laughs) Nobody talks back. Nobody cries. Nobody's cranky. It's incredible. It's incredible. You're having Bible time. You get in your car on the way to work, and there's no traffic. You're on the guide, and there's no traffic. It's like the Red Sea has been parted for you. You get to the office on time, your schedule, everything is lined up, no meetings are canceled, nothing new got added. Throughout the day, you're actually thinking about God, you're tuned in with him. And then on your way out of the office, one of your coworkers stops you and says, I heard you're a Christian. I'd love for you to tell me about Jesus. You have this incredible moment and you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and work in your friend's heart. That's day one. Here's day two. It's just the opposite. Your alarm goes off and you break it. Um, (laughs) You, of course, miss Bible time, prayer time. You wake up five minutes before you actually need to be in the car to get to work, so you don't really shower. You sort of don't even brush your teeth. You put toothpaste on a finger and rub it while you're driving. You're on the guide, which we know is um, not going to be in the new creation, and there's traffic everywhere, and the people in front of you don't seem to know how to drive, and you're getting agitated and angry. You stumble in the office late. You look at your calendar. There's all sorts of appointments canceled. There's all sorts of fires that have, have arisen. You're flustered. You're worked up. You're not thinking about God at all. That evening, quite unexpectedly, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. Now, to quote Bridges, he says this, he said, would you enter those two witnessing opportunities, the sharing of your faith, with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? If you answered yes to those questions, you have lots of company among believers. I've described these two scenarios to a number of audience and asked, would you respond differently? And invariably, about 80% indicate they would. They would be less confident of God's blessing while sharing Christ at the end of a bad day than they would after a good one. Is such thinking justified? Does God work that way? The answer to both questions is no. Because God's blessing does not depend on our performance. Now, there's a dynamic in the Bible around obedience and faithfulness and all these different things. That's not what this is talking about. This is, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, does God's blessing depend upon your performance? This Pharisee thought so. That's why he listed out his spiritual accomplishments. Okay, if that's true, then why do we think this way? It is because we do believe that God's blessing on our lives is somehow conditioned upon our spiritual performance. If we performed well and have a good day, we assume we're in a position for God to bless us. And we know God's blessings come to us through Christ, but we also have this vague, very real notion that they are also conditioned by our behavior. 
Such thinking is even stronger when we've had a bad day. There is virtually no doubt in our minds that we have forfeited God's favor for some period of time, most likely until the next day. I've asked people why they think God would probably not use them to share the gospel with someone on a bad day. A typical reply is, I would, wouldn't be worthy. I wouldn't be good enough. Such a reply reveals, and I'm almost done, an all too common misconception of the Christian life. The thinking that although we are saved by grace, we earn or forfeit God's blessing in our daily lives by our performance. And then to quote Bridges again, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The Pharisee didn't see that. He told this parable because well-meaning, disciplined, obedient God, desiring people like many of us can sometimes hinge our rightness. He went to his house justified, the tax collector. That means to be in right standing with God. And we can mistakenly, functionally believe that it's tethered to how we perform. Oh, that's not the songs we sing. It's not the verses we quote, but it's the narrative we play all the time. The stage for this parable, the setting is really key. Prayer is one of, if not the most intimate thing that we can actually participate in. This is communion with our God. And from the overflow of the heart, the mouth prays. And we see the distinction and where the heart was tuned between the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. And before God, the Pharisee was like, man, I am pretty great. The tax collector, if anything, was like, God, I am anything but great. We see this difference. So in the, the, the prayer of the, the Pharisee, I just put this up on the screen. He just says, God, I think, we have, I think we have a slide for this one, God. And then you notice, like, I, 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 I. It was about him and what he produced. And what he produced, praise God that he wasn't sinning in particular ways. Praise God that he was being generous with his resources. Praise God that he was, he was saying, I want to feast on God, so I'm going to lay down some food for a little bit to try to create some space for that. But the, but the prayer was just about him. It wasn't, God, look what you've done in my life. It was, oh, thank, then I'm not like that. Instead of, thanks be to God that you're changing me. You know, notice the posture of each man. One thought he was righteous, one knew in and of himself he was not. The tax collector who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, just beat his breast, just pounded on his chest. So lift the eyes to heaven was a very common practice of prayer during this time to kind of gaze towards heaven to try to remind us what we're doing here, that these aren't just words floating in space, but actually directed towards our living God. The tax collector just eyes down. Now, the Pharisee likely was praying with his eyes directed towards heaven, but we know from this text, he wasn't just staring at God. He was looking around the temple. Oh, I know what that person did. I definitely am not as screwed up as them. And that tax collector, he probably shouldn't even be here. Look at another contrast. 
The tax collector in this text is far off. It says he was standing far off by himself in the, the temple court. So the temple is, the, the way the temple worked in the Old Testament is it became uh, a shadow of the heavenly court. So when you think of the temple, it's supposed to be like this little moment of heaven on earth where, where you move from this court system and it kind of moves, it moves in closer and closer and you get to an area called the holy and we're gonna get into this in a minute, but then you get to the holy of holies, but it's supposed to be a reflection of his throne, of where God reigns, of his presence on earth. And so in in this temple, there's this large area that people would gather. They would come in to, to pray and to seek God. There was places that they couldn't go past, though, unless they were a certain type of priest. Well, in this text, the tax collector is probably as far away from the center as he can get. He's as far to the edge of the court as possible. By contrast, the Pharisee was likely as close as he could get. He trusted in himself. He, with unabashed lack of humility, come to the very doors of the furthest places that he could get. He had an unfounded confidence to draw near to God because he was prideful. He trusted in himself. I love how C.S. Lewis captures this in Mere Christianity. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's, that's the problem that the Pharisee had. His eyes were directed horizontally. He says, in comparison to them, I'm looking pretty good. But his eyes didn't go vertical. See, it's both the problem, but also in that we actually see the solution to the problem. Richard Lovelace in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, wonderful book. He lays out this kind of, uh, this articulation of revivals that occurred. What happened? Like, how did those revivals, how did Christ come alive to people in ways like he'd never come alive and make movements within old cities and regions, but also in our own hearts and lives? And he says, there's two preconditions that are always prevalent in any revival or any renewal. The two preconditions that prime our hearts to pray like the tax collector are this, an increase in awareness of God's holiness and an increase in awareness of our sinfulness. Those two things simultaneously showing this great unbridgeable chasm that our spiritual accolades and performance will never ever spread the gap of. The Pharisee had a truncated view of God's holiness because he was comparing himself to others. Which is why he thought his spiritual performance was enough. The tax collector ironically, had a much better view of God's holiness. Tax collectors were despised at this time. They had sold out to the Roman occupiers. They used their position of government-funded uh, or government-approved authority to dupe others, to lie to others, to embezzle from others, to cheat others. As he stands in this temple far off to the side, head to the ground, beating his chest, says, oh, God is holy, and I know I am not. We see it clearly in his, in his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that word mercy is a really big one. The word mercy there is actually, the, the original language is a different word than what we typically translate the word mercy. So often we hear mercy like Jesus is walking by and someone is, is infirmed and they need healing. And so they would cry out like, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? But this word for mercy means something different. This is, the, this is a word that's translated in other parts of the Bible as propitiation. Would you have propitiation on me? That's an old sounding word that captures a really important idea. 
Propitiation in the Bible, a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice would be what's known as a wrath-bearing or wrath-averting sacrifice. The tax collector knew that his sin was not just moral but personal, an offense to a holy God, that there is real judgment, that there is real just and measured anger, that there's a real offense to God over our sin. Now, I want to recognize our modern ears don't naturally resonate with what I just said. But I would suggest to you that our culture loves the idea of justice. That's why we have things like cancel culture. That's why we call out abuses and want to see those dealt with. That's why we even have language about things like restitution and reckoning that there's an offense that's been done and people are rightfully angry and and, and, and offended by it. How much more so with God? See, that impulse in us is a God-given impulse that our offense towards a holy God merits his just judgment. See, we want a God of, of love, but if we don't have a God who has judgment towards our sin, we don't have a God of justice. And so this tax collector is saying, oh, I know I deserve to never get in. Oh, I know I deserve to be cast out. Oh, I know for the things that I've done, what right do I have to come before you? That's why he says, oh, would you, would you make propitiation for me? Would you, would you, would you, would you save me? Would you provide the, the way to pay for all of the debt that I have accrued? See, what the tax collector prayed for was actually the very center feature in the Holy of Holies. Remember how I said that the temple court was like this outer court and then another court and then you get to the Holy and then inside that, the Holy of Holies. And the design of the Holy of Holies was this place where only the high priest would go once a year on this day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would go into this room that was full of incense to try to give uh, some sort of buffer between him and his humanity and God himself. Remember the Holy of Holies is where God resides. This kind of way of um, metaphorically and spiritually showing this sort of place where God is most present. And once a year, the, the, the high priest, after going through a huge ritual of changing clothes and sacrifices and cleansing, all these things to try to give some semblance of, 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 a, of a degree of holiness that's acceptable to God, he would make an animal sacrifice. A number of them, I'll just talk about one of them. He'd make an animal sacrifice for the sin of God's people. And then he would take the, some of the blood of that sacrifice because the Bible says things like, it's gruesome. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the wages of sin or death. It gives you a picture of what we've merited. And he takes some of that blood and he takes it into the Holy of Holies. And in the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the, the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. This box that was covered in gold with these cherubim, these kind of winged creatures on the top. They were kind of looking at it like these, like, it's like the angelic, like, like a jury box. And inside the, the ark was what was the, what known as the Ten Commandments. It was the law of God. And the idea is God's in his throne and the, the earth is his footstool. And so the, the ark of the covenant literally was something that kings would put their feet on. It was like their ottoman. And it was very common for them to have the law of the people in that box. And the idea was, is this is the standard. This is how we're to live as the people in this particular culture. Well, God is saying the same thing. This is the standard. As we look at those commands, oh, we've broken them. We see some of them listed here. So what hope do we have? Well, the high priest would come in and he would take some of the blood of the sacrifice that was sacrificed as a substitute for tax collectors and 
rebels and anyone that would come. And he takes some of that blood and he puts it on the top of the ark. And here's where I want to clue into this text. The top of the ark was called this, the mercy seat. The propitiatory place. And the, the symbolism is this, that God would look down from his throne and instead of seeing the commands that we've broken and bringing judgment, he would see the sacrifice that would offered and his justice was satisfied, that some took the place. So, something took the place of all of those that, that had re- rebelled, and the blood was a symbol of that, and his wrath would be satisfied. His wrath would be averted. That's what the tax collector is praying for. God, would you take care of uh, uh, the judgment that's coming to me? Would you put it on another? And if you read the Bible, what you'll find is this. The, the mercy seat, the, this place in top of the ark, this, this cover, this place of mercy, of forgiveness, that Jesus Christ is the true and better mercy seat. See, where the story goes, what the tax collector prayed for from his vantage point was something that he didn't see yet, but it was the cross that Jesus was going towards. And on the cross, Jesus Christ became the better offering that was slaughtered in the place of all that would trust him. He became the better high priest who didn't have to go through this ritual system to try to make him right before God. And he went to the better mercy seat, which was the cross of Christ. And on that cross, he took the punishment that we deserve, that we lay hold of, not by performing, but by faith. See, he took the judgment. He took the wrath. That's why on the cross, the middle statement that Jesus made, he made seven statements on the cross. The middle one is darkness is overlaid. He just goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when we stand at the heavenly course and God says, why should I let you in? See, because there's one that was already forsaken for me that I would never be. The word mercy is really important, and so is the word sinner. It's not God be merciful to me, I made an oops-a-doodle. I kind of messed up. Sinner. It actually says even something more than a sinner. The, the text, if you get into it, it literally reads like this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It doesn't leave it generic. It makes it very definite and very direct. The Pharisees comparing himself to the tax collector, in effect, saying, I know I sin, but not like that. The tax collector doesn't have a reference point to anyone else other than God. And in light of God, he says, I am the sinner, the chief of them. I'm not sure how this lands on you. Um, This is heavy, big, deep things. But let me suggest, to the extent that you embrace the prayer of this tax collector, something surprising will happen. You will become radically freed and radically secure. As this text, you'll go home knowing you're justified. Instead of piling up your achievements to try and right yourself. Instead of thinking like so many that heaven is contingent upon living a good life and doing good works. You throw yourself on the perfect works of Christ. And remember why Jesus told this parable. This wasn't to insult the some. It was to try to get the some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous to stop trusting in themselves so they could trust in Christ. Trusting yourself, that is unbelievably fragile. So how do we respond? Verses 14 and 17, I would suggest you are parallel. Those who humble themselves are exalted and then this story of 
children coming. That you have to receive the kingdom like a child. And I actually think the, the first word in verse 15 or the, 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 the reference point to, to kids in verse 15 is even better for this application, babies. Babies are coming to him. It's a real world example of waking up to God's holiness and our sinfulness and knowing there's absolutely nothing that we can do to bridge the divide. That we are utterly dependent upon the mercy of God like a baby. Oh, babies are cute and adorable and such a blessing. But they don't contribute a whole tremendous amount to the bottom line. I, <laughs> they're costly. They, they take, they wake you up, they, they need to be fed and changed. They don't clean up the messes. They make the kind of messes you didn't even know existed. <laughs> and it's such a great picture of this. It's saying, come like a baby. Say, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing but need. And those are the ones that go home justified. Oh, God, I got nothing. I can't point to anything. It doesn't mean you're as deplorable as you think. Don't, don't hear me say that. Oh, my goodness, this room is full of people that do wonderful things. And God loves the wonderful things you do, but none of them are for merit before. Our salvation, our confidence, our justification, our forgiveness, our adoption, our identity, our answer to the question of why would God let us in has nothing to do with how we perform. It only has to do with what Christ did. And that's unbelievably good news. I'll do a longer quote from Tim Keller. I'll just put the first line up on the screen, though. I want you to hear the contrast in this. I want you to hear the, 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 the good news difference of this with every other value system ever offered to you. The Christian identity is the only identity in which your identity is received, not achieved. You got it as a gift, not as a paycheck for performing well. He goes on, he says, every human being desperately needs assurance that they are received, that they are loved and accepted. We desperately need the assurance of love and value regardless of the ups and downs of our performance. Every other culture, traditional, modern, every other century, every other religion basically gives you an identity based on your performance. You are either living up to what your parents say or your community says, or you're being honorable and dying in battle for the glory of your people. Or you're figuring out what your little inner star is and then trying to live according to that. That is tremendous pressure. Your self-worth goes up and down all the time depending on how well you're doing. Only Christianity says this, yes, the good has to be achieved, but you can't do it. The good, there is a transcendent sacred order and it must be achieved, it must be honored, but you can't do it. Because if you try and do it, You'll always be insecure, radically insecure, or you'll be super arrogant like this Pharisee and dead wrong. Basically, modern identities, traditional identities, all to some degree are fragile. All of them are certainly crushing. And then he goes on and Keller quotes he's from 2 Corinthians 5.29. For we know that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. It's saying that Christ Jesus didn't become sin. He, he was declared sin. He took my sin on the cross and your sin and anyone would trust him. And, he, and God treated him as if he was sinful and then treats us as if we were actually righteous. Not because we earned it, not because we performed for it, but because he did. And the way we lay access to it is to come like a child. 
And then he goes on, I'll quote Keller again, he says, that's why that incredible line in John 17 where Jesus Christ says, I want the world to know that you love them, my disciples, even as you love me. Even as. Christ praying on the night before he went to the cross where he became the substitute of all that would trust, he said, I want the world to know that you love them even as you love me, your son. Do you hear it? Even as. Not sort of. Not sort of like. It means that God now is your decisive validator. Not your family, not the community, not the Guild of Warriors, and certainly not yourself. And I'll end with this. And the only eyes in the universe whose opinion counts looks at you in Jesus Christ and finds you more valuable than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And he does. And he does. I'm going to skip a number of things. We're not going to get to the second phrase. Um, I'll just end with the question we began with. If he died tonight and stand before God and he looks at you and says, why should I let you in? Wonderfully. The answer has nothing to do with how well you've performed. It has everything to do with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make that truth sing to us? God, this is a room full of hardworking people. They're trying to do the right thing, day in, day out. And that is so commendable, and it's so good. God, your word doesn't invite us to be as big of idiots as we possibly can be. But it reminds us time and time again that all of our good deeds and doing are meant to be a response to the perfect finished work that Christ himself has done. So we don't have to ride this up and down. I was gonna say a roller coaster, but those can be thrilling. I'm thinking of seasickness, the up and down, nausea-making work of trying to, to prove something, trying to become, trying to earn something before you that we can never earn. Oh, we don't want that weight. We don't want that instability. And we're so grateful in the work of Christ that we don't have that weight, that, that he took the weight. That we don't have that sort of shifting sand, but we have the firmness of Christ, our rock. So I'm asking God that you would grant saving faith to each and every person in this room, that we would see what Christ has done. And we would yield. And say, God, be merciful to me the sinner, and know that we get to go home justified. And it will never be taken away because it was never contingent upon us in the first place, but secured by the precious life and death of Jesus, vindicated by his resurrection. In Christ's name we pray, amen.